Welcome to uh, Talk is Jericho. Obviously, we had the biggest night, one of the biggest nights in AEW's history, uh, last Wednesday night for Blood and Guts, um, which, of course, was the Inner Circle versus the Pinnacle. And we put this match on uh, Wednesday on TV, and as a result, we ended up with uh, a huge rating. 1.1 million was the average, but it was basically at 1.2, 1.3 for Stadium Stampede. The demo at 0.42. The uh, males, 18 to 49, at 0.58. Both of those were at the top of the list of all cable shows. So if you're going off all the cable shows, every show that you see on cable, which there's hundreds and hundreds of, we were number one for the night. So AEW Dynamite in just over a year has now become the number one most watched show on cable TV. So that's a huge, huge success and a huge uh, accolade for us to be able to, 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 to brag about and claim and boast about. And thanks to all you guys who checked it out. But the story of Blood and Guts is a long one. So I'm glad it did the rating that it did, especially on Cinco de Mayo, which I think most shows uh, were down about 20%. So if you want to see what we might have done without Cinco de Mayo, add 20% to, you know, 1.1 million. And that's an extra, you know, 220 carry the three. And that puts you about 1.35, 1.4. But still, number one uh, on the night for cable. Thanks to this uh, amazing match, which, of course, was two rings covered by a giant cage with a roof on it, which was a throwback to War Games, which was created, I believe, maybe 1987 by Dusty Rhodes. 1986, I know Cody and Tony would probably know that date exactly. Um, but this was kind of a modern-day version of it. And obviously, we couldn't call it War Games because that name was owned by the WWE. And we actually got the idea for Blood and Guts, Cody did, I believe, when Vince was doing a promo an interview about AEW early on, saying that we were more of a Blood and Guts-type promotion with you know, blatant uh, bleeding and all this other stuff. So we thought, well, let's just call it Blood and Guts. And that's where the name came from. Uh, the rules are pretty much the same. As you saw, it started with a five-minute period, which was this time was Sammy and Dax, and then every two minutes, a new guy came in. And then that's when it used to be called the Match Beyond started. We called it the All-Out Assault. So after that 21 minutes, when I finally got in there, the All-Out Assault started, and that's when the match began. And from that moment on, it's surrender or submit only. So... We did this match and had it built up fairly well in the three or four weeks beforehand with this giant beatdown that the Pinnacle gave the Inner Circle. And then we were off TV for four weeks or so. And then, of course, we came back and beat them up. And then a couple of scathing promos. Just great stuff. We really built that match perfectly and properly up uh, to something everybody really, really wanted to see. And we're very excited to watch. But this is a reason why I think that was the case, is that this match has kind of been in AEW's back pocket for a long time, for over a year. Because uh, we were originally, as we have said many times, going to do Blood and Guts on March 25th, 2020. And it was going to be at the Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey. And I think at the time we had sold 12,000 tickets for it. Um, it was the Elite versus the Inner Circle. And uh, at that point, Cody, who I think really wanted to be in the match at first, had taken himself out of it because he was going to look towards becoming the very first TNT champion. Uh, of course, these are my recollections. They, 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 I could be off on certain exact details, but this is what I kind of experienced. So then we ended up uh, uh, it was Hangman and Kenny and the Bucks and um, uh, Matt Hardy, uh, who replaced Nick Jackson. 
Yeah, replacing Nick Jackson. So it would have been Hangman, Matt Jackson, Matt Hardy, Kenny, and Cody. I think that was the original configuration. And then when we kind of got hit with this uh, pandemic, that everything got thrown out the window because we, and it's been t- talked about many times, our last live show was March 11th in Salt Lake City. And that's where we injured Nick. If you remember, we put his head under the, the garage door and slammed it down. And then it was going to be five on four. You know, who are you going to get in the following week? They were going to announce the uh, leader of the Dark Order, who was going to be Brody Lee in Rochester in his own hometown. And then later on that night, we were going to be out there, you know, threatening to beat up the elite five on four. No one will team with you. You got There's nothing you can do. And then a drone was going to fly into the arena. And that, of course, would be the um, the precursor to the return of Broken Matt Hardy, which would have torn the freaking house down. A double surprise, you know, swerve of these two giant talents joining AW on the same night. Fortunately, that never happened. And we kind of had to go back to a square one. But before that, the original plan for um, Blood and Guts was to actually be in Atlanta in February. Which was going to be a few weeks before that, we had Dynamite in Atlanta. If you remember when Cody and Wardlow had that amazing cage match, that was originally thought to be uh, Blood and Guts. I had a real problem with that, though, because I thought we were shoehorning this match in there. Cody wanted it to be in Atlanta because, obviously, the history of Dusty Rhodes and WCW and the, and the Rhodes family. But I just thought that's when Moxley and Jericho... I always talk about myself in third person, <laughs> so don't think uh, I'm trying to be snotty. But Moxley and Jericho were about ready to have the title match on the pay-per-view, which I believe was March, or no, it was at the end of February, February 29th or something along those lines. So it just seemed like it was kind of not the right place for that. And conversely, I made a few, actually, yeah, I made a few calls at February 19th, I think is when, is when that match was in Atlanta. So I think we were on at the end of February, I think February 29th. So I actually, I remember called Tony Khan and I called Cody and I called Rafael Morphy, first of all, who's our booking, uh, booking master, booking agent and said, what do we have option wise over the next month? What do you think? Maybe four weeks after I lose the title, Let's maybe think about doing blood and guts there. And I know that one of the options was Minneapolis, but it was in some kind of a, of a, a, some kind of a smaller place that might not fit the double cage. And then he thought, well, we might get this Prudential Center gig on March 25th. And I was like, that's the perfect way for us to make our debut in the New York market with this giant blood and guts match. And it was like we said, we sold I think 12,000 tickets. Um, we still had a couple weeks to go, so we probably would have topped out at 13 or 14,000, which would have torn the house down. We moved the blood and guts to then. Uh, Cody had that great match with Wardlow. I had that great match with uh, Moxley and, and uh, dropped the title to him, dropped the strizz up, brother. And uh, then two weeks later, the pandemic happened and we got everything kind of rug pulled from underneath us. And one of the plans was still to do Double or Nothing from Daly's Place in front of nobody. And there was a big kind of brouhaha about that. I know a lot of people did not want the first blood and guts to be in front of no people. You got to keep this in mind too. This was back in the innocent days of flattening the curve. You remember that? For like two or three weeks, if we all stay inside and don't go out, this should be done. Well, here we are, you know, a year and two months later, and now we're just starting to get to the end of the line here and get the light at the end of the tunnel and everything back to normal and all that sort of stuff. But at the time we didn't know. So we thought, what's why not just hold it off for a couple weeks or, or a month and I remember Tony Khan was adamant that we had to continue. And he was right. We had to continue because we had just gotten this huge new television deal uh, on the TNT network. I'm not talking out of school because you can look it up. I think January of 2020, we re-signed after three months from a revenue share 
to a deal that was worth like $175 million um, over four years. So we had to keep the lights on. We had to keep great programming coming. And then once we got kicked out of Florida, when everything was shutting down, we moved to Atlanta. And you know the famous story of doing 26 matches in one day with 29% of our roster uh, with Jericho and Tony Schiavone on commentary. And that's when we did the whole TNT tournament. Uh, we came back from that, and then suddenly we have this pay-per-view, and that's when we decided to do Stadium Stampede out of necessity. We couldn't do uh, Blood and Guts. So, therefore, we need another kind of big stipulation to do some kind of a blow-off between the Elite and the Inner Circle. We re- we uh, tape our show at the Daily's Place, which is adjacent to the stadium. Why don't we utilize the stadium uh, for our advantage and do a whole new match in there. And that was a whole nother talk as Jericho we could do in the future of like, what the hell are we going to do in the stadium? It's just completely barren and empty at first. Um, so the idea at that point was let's not do blood and guts, but let's keep going forward. Cause I was thinking, like, why don't we just do like a, like, like a season break? Like, you know, when you, when, it, when a TV show goes, uh, goes on break for a couple months, you know, here's the season finale. And then, but we couldn't do that because we had a, a contract to, uh, to adhere to. And lo and behold, I think we put on some of the greatest shows, not just in AEW's history, but of all time over the course of the last year uh, in front of no people for a while. And then finally in front of, um, of, of, of smaller crowds and then finally playing in front of our biggest uh, crowd post-pandemic ever when we were out there in front of about 1,800 to 2,000 people last Wednesday night. Um, so that's kind of the background of blood and guts. And like I said, it was always one of those things like, well, when do we do this? And, and what kind of an angle do we have? And do we try and still have the elite and, and, and the, uh, inner circle involved, but you know, you don't really think of things that way. And for me as well too, a match like this, a, a huge stipulation gimmick match has to be the product of the story not the story being the product of the match. And what I mean by that is, and WWE's done this a lot over the years, Hell in the Cell, for example, used to be a product of the story. Mick Foley and uh, Undertaker. Shawn Michaels and Undertaker. This blood feud goes to the cage. Only place you can do it, it's Hell in the Cell. This must happen. Now they have a pay-per-view called Hell in the Cell every May or whatever it is, and you have to do Hell in the Cell matches even if they're not warranted. You know, stick t- I did a Hell in a Cell in a tag team match once. It was me and Big Show versus Batista and Rey Mysterio. Why the hell were we in a Hell in a Cell? There was no blood feud there. There's nothing at stake on that. Um, so we wanted to utilize Blood and Guts because it is the first of its kind because it is a little different. I don't know if you guys saw, but due to kind of the way that the setup was in Daly's place, at the end of the two cages where the doors, where the, where the heels door was and where the babyface's door was, there was a platform that we had built because there was extra space between the cage and the apron side. So it's almost like on that side, a little bit of a combination of, let's say, an elimination chamber and a blood and gut. So there is a little bit more uh, of a playground there. There was more of those kind of aluminum struts, shall we say, the, the posts that we used to climb up on top of the cage. I mean, those were all throughout the cage. That's where I, sh- I stuffed Sean Spears' head through there, and you could kind of see... Um, uh, you know, using that the, to our advantage and being creative with it. So it was different from a normal war games. It was blood and guts. So when are we going to do this? Who's going to be involved? And then suddenly when this thing happened with MJF and the pinnacle in the back of our minds, we thought, well, maybe we can do that and put that in, in the hell in the cell. And my only thing was, is the pinnacle going to be big enough for this? Are they going to be like quote unquote worthy? And lo- you know, we, when we built them up 
to the point where they were very worthy and, and uh, the perfect team to go in there because there was a lot of comedy element between the inner circle and the elite. You saw that in Stadium Stampede. Not that it would have been super, wouldn't have been super intense in the cage and in the in the in the blood and guts, but it seemed really warranted for Jericho's guys and MGF's guys to have this kind of battle, you know, this 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 blood and guts battle. And it was something that originally we had kind of thought about doing later on. Uh, but then it was decided, let's do it earlier. I think Tony came up with the idea and we thought about it. And we, we thought, why does, why does Blood and Guts have to be the blow-off for the feud? Why can't it be kind of the kickoff? I mean, we, we built it with these promos. I mean, we did that by necessity. But I think it blew everybody's mind that we, that we did it right out of the gate. And I think it blew everybody's mind just exactly how violent it really was. I mean, Blood and Guts for sure. Uh, wasn't just a catchy name. I mean, there there was no entrails. We'll say that. Nobody's uh, intestines flew on the ground. Although there were some nice slices. There was definitely some fillets out there a little bit, but uh, and lots of blood. I mean, you know, here's another thing, too. You got to remember, we are involved in the business to the point where sometimes you can't see the forest through the trees. We know all the critics, and we read all the critiques and read everything online. And, and you know, a lot of people, and we'll talk about this later, are a little bit stiff about certain things. But when you are kind of obsessed and thinking that every single person that watched it feels the same way that hardcore fans do, you realize that's not the case. Most people I know that watched the show just couldn't believe how bloody it was and just couldn't believe how violent it was. It's like, wow, you guys really were fighting each other out there. And this was just insane. And it was hard to watch. Or I loved it. I couldn't, couldn't wait to watch more. Most people that watch the shows aren't on social media commentating. And that's something where they say, you know, Chris Jericho is trending on Twitter. That's awesome. But if you look and see how many tweets get you trending, it's 2,500 tweets, 3,000 tweets, 4,000 tweets. Maybe if it's super something big, it's 10,000 tweets. We had 1.3 million people watching the show. Divide 1.3 million by the 10,000 tweets that get something trending, either in a good way or a bad way. And you can see it really doesn't make that much of a difference. Wrestling fans in a lot of ways, all of us listening, a lot like KISS fans, Star Wars fans, they watch everything, they appreciate everything, but they always are super critical of everything. And that is the truth. And I know it because I'm a Star Wars fan and a KISS fan and a wrestling fan as well. So, um, like I said, it, it, it's just one of these things that was just a total spectacle. It was built perfectly and it was the perfect spot for it. This is Blood and Guts, and we're going to get into the intricacies of the match and all the ramifications that happened because of it. But first, I want to tell you what helped me get rid of the bloody taste in my mouth after Blood and Guts. I'm talking about Quip gum. Seriously, my favorite electric toothbrush maker now makes my favorite gum. Thank you, Quip. Uh, Quip not only tastes great, it also helps prevent cavities, which is awesome. And it comes with the cool dispenser that will remind you of the one-click candy you loved as a kid. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, I got the slate metal Quip gum dispenser and the mint gum. It's like a slim cartridge that you snap into the holder. Then you press the top and a piece of gum comes out right at the top. It's great. So like I said, Quip gum can help prevent cavities and freshen your breath when you chew it for 20 minutes after eating. It's sugar-free, zero calories, super long-lasting mint flavor in a crunchy tri-layer design. You can put 10 pieces of gum at a time to the dispenser, which comes in five colors and in metal or plastic versions. It really fits easily in your pocket or your purse. It's extra safe and hygienic so you can share Quip gum with your friends. No hands, no wrappers, no hassles. <clears throat> Plus, you get a gum refill plan with a customizable subscription that lets you chew and share at your own pace. You never need to worry about running out. You never need to make a special trip to the store for gum. And the more you buy, the more you save with bulk discounts on extra gum packs. Spread good oral health habits and join the over 5 million mouths, including mine, that are already using Quip. Start chewing for less than $2 per gum pack. 
So if you go to quip.com slash Jericho now, you get a free plastic dispenser with any refill plan. That's a free dispenser at getquip.com slash Jericho. G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Jericho. Get your electric Quip toothbrush, refillable floss, and new Quip gum. Make your mouth happy today at getquip.com slash Jericho. You can also find the Quip products in the oral care aisle at your local Walmart. So that's cool. Quip, the good habits company. All right, welcome back to Talk is Jericho. And we are talking about the behind the scenes of Blood and Guts and uh, so much great stuff to talk about. We mentioned kind of the history of the entire match. But what I want to get into now is kind of the specifics of when we actually did it. Uh, one of the kind of the highlights I think that people really enjoyed um, was the uh, Inner Circle's prison outfits where we all kind of had matching prison jumpsuits. And this is something that we thought about doing for the first Blood and Guts way back in, uh, in March of last year. And I'm not sure who thought of it. You know, I thought first maybe it was Jake. Jake thought it was me. Sounds like something maybe Santana might have thought of. I'm not too sure. But the idea is that we would get, you know, we, we've had kind of a history of wearing matching outfits. When we had the football outfits um, for Stadium Stampede last year. And if you remember the weigh-in that we had with Moxley right before as the go-home show before uh, it was Moxley Jericho's championship match, we did uh, kind of came to the ring wearing um, matching sweatsuits, like matching uh, training suits i guess you say trainers outfits and so we thought well it's a perfect way to do that for for blood and guts is where the um same type of, of costumes as well so we got uh a couple of people backstage to find these things and put a stencil on the back and the idea was it would be our last name and then underneath would be the jail that uh we kind of grew up close to from our hometowns like the big the big jail where we uh kind of spent our childhood. So Jake is from Oklahoma City, and his was El Reno Prison. Uh, Ortiz and Santana both had Rikers Island, which was cool. Uh, Sammy had the Harris County Corrections. We had to look for a bit because he's from, I think, Houston area, and there wasn't really any cool sounding. It was just like Houston Prison and Houston Jail. I'm sure you wouldn't want to stay there, but on the back of the outfit, Harris County Corrections was, was the best one. And then for me, it was Stony Mountain Penitentiary, obviously coming from Winnipeg. You never wanted to end up in Stony. That's where all the worst criminals always ended up. So that was kind of the idea behind that, which, of course, was matched by uh, MJF and the Pinnacle wearing all white outfits, which was really kind of cool. And I don't think they really know what we were going to wear, and we didn't really know what they were going to wear. So that was kind of the, the cool thing about it was, it was just kind of, oh, you guys got all white, and we've got these prison outfits. And it just kind of makes this spectacle more of an event. And like I said, considering that we are now the number one most watched uh, show on cable TV uh, due to last week's monster rating, uh, I think it, it, it worked very, very well. And it's funny, too, because the, the pinnacle, a lot of the guys were, were trunks, you know, MGF wears trunks. And actually, they, I think they all do, except for Wardlow. But my daughters who watched the match, and this is going to come in uh, important later, were calling them the diaper boys because they all look like they're wearing diapers. And I guess Dax, you know, he... Uh, he doesn't have a, a, a muffin butt, shall we say. I think we saw his ass crack a few times. My daughter's like, how many more times do you have to see Diaper Boy's butt? <laughs> so, uh, but still, it, made, it definitely made a whole kind of a cool um, vibe, something special, something that you don't really see every day. And because of that, um, you know, because it was such a special moment, you know, we, we decided to 
you know, open up kind of the area there at Daly's Place. And um, and like I said, having almost 2,000 people in there, it was the biggest crowd post-pandemic. And I, I bet you, you know, if we would have waited a month or two to we're back, I don't know, in Miami or, or at Los Angeles or who knows, Toronto, we probably could have sold 10,000 tickets. But it's not about that. It's about when does the match fit best. And the crowd we had in Daly's Place was so loud. I mean, the vibe was just off the charts. And it was the first time. And listen, the city of Jacksonville has been so great to AEW. And the fact that we have been drawing a crowd from the same city regularly for the last year, think about that, is almost insane. Like, I remember when WWE was doing Shotgun Saturday Night, uh, gosh, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, whenever that was, they weren't even drawing a crowd every Saturday in New York City. And here we are in Jacksonville, not known to be the big wrestling capital of the world, although it really is. Like MGF says it's almost like a territory now at this point. We're drawing these people that are coming every week to come see us. And sometimes it'd be 500 people. Sometimes it'd be 1,000 people, anything in between. But they always showed up. There was never a week where it was like, ah, we only got 80 tickets sold. Like People came to see us. And, and so... It was almost like a reward to the city of Jacksonville and that we did this monumental match for the first time ever in the city that's kind of supported us for the last year. And those people that came, I know there's some people from out of state, but I think the majority were still from the Florida area. And like I said, we've had, you know, reactions and all that sort of thing, but you forget kind of what a real big crowd reaction is. Um, you know, because you can kind of hear the crowd if there's 500 people or 800 people and they're spread out and it's outdoors. So the sound always goes up. It's like wrestling in a stadium where, or, you know, the, the sound always goes up and out of the, of the roof because there is no roof. So to have that, um, that feeling, I remember when, when, when the Pinnacles music played, they, they were legit booze. And um, when Judas started, it was an actual big time pop. And everybody backstage, Santana, Ortiz, Sammy, Jake, they were all just going, yes. And I'm a little bit more calm. But I remember Santana was just screaming, come on, boys, come on. And you could just feel the goosebumps from that size of the crowd. And here's another thing. We started having the crowd. We didn't do it. The crowd started singing Judas on the Jericho cruise. And that kind of became a short-lived tradition because we only had, you know, a couple weeks before there was no crowds anymore. It's something I didn't want people to lose. So we kept it going during the pandemic where it kind of became a little bit uh, stock, I guess, just kind of expected because the people in the crowd are our are people, you know, uh, the wrestlers that are there to, to kind of make some noise and provide some ambiance, which was great. And the first week people came back, it did feel like Madison Square Garden because we had people. I think it was 800 people that first time or whatever it was. And I was like, well, they still remember to sing Judas. And they did remember to sing Judas, but the only difference was they only sang the first chorus. Whereas before the pandemic, they sang both choruses. And I was like, oh, I, I love when they sing both. So we kind of would figure out a way to either edit it on TV or get people to kind of, uh, we, we would try to like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Pander to them to sing to the second chorus. So when we came out in Jacksonville for Blood and Guts, they went right into the second chorus. And it's like, this is just amazing. And this is a big fight feel. And this is exactly what we were hoping for and exactly what we got, which just made the intensity of the match and the uh, excitement of the match that much bigger. And another thing that just made it so much bigger is we had all done press for this because everyone was really interested. And we were pushing it like a pay-per-view. 
And sometimes you think, well, maybe they should have saved it for the pay-per-view. But you have to remember, like I said earlier, we just signed this gigantic television deal with the TNT network. They're going to want some big ratings delivered as well. And so these kind of destination shows, um, it's okay to do bigger matches that aren't aren't on pay-per-view. If you remember the Winter's Coming that we did that was cool, you know, the Fighter Fest, Fight for the Fallen. And now we have blood and guts. And, and it's really interesting because doing all this press, it made me realize just how many firsts I've been in. And what I mean by that is I was in the first Elimination Chamber. I was in the first Money in the Bank match. I was in the first Ambrose Asylum, which is currently the only one. I was in the first Mimosa Mayhem, which is currently the only one. And here I am in the first blood and guts because even like we said, it's based on war games. It's not exactly the same. There is some differences to it. And one of the interesting things is when you're in a match for the first time, you can't really go back and watch the first, but another one, you know, like there was no elimination chamber to go back and, and, and rewatch or eat mimosa mayhem. Like how exactly do we do this? I, I still love that match. That was great. When we, when I came up with that concept, people thought I was crazy and then we actually did it. Now everybody wants to have a mimosa mayhem match, but then for this one, obviously you could go back and watch a few previous war games and I'd never seen a war games before. Uh, the, I watched war games 92 with Austin and, and Ricky steamboat and, um, you can actually see a homage to War Games 2 in the match that we had, which I'll tell you about uh, in a bit. So what exactly do we do to, to make this match great? And it's, it's a really easy match to have because it's basically based on who has the advantage. You know, heels, of course, is always best if they have the two-on-one first. Uh, and then the new guy comes in, and then the new guy comes in, and there you go. And then finally, when the all-out assault starts, then it's just all guns blazing. And I know some people were kind of thinking it was a little bit strange that Sammy basically just took the, uh, the the disadvantage, volunteered for it. And that was two reasons. One, I didn't want to see a coin toss. I just thought coin tosses, it just doesn't fit the vibe of this. We've been kicking the shit of each other and just verbally eviscerating, eviscerating each other. Coin toss just doesn't seem right. And I thought the idea of Spears kind of knocking the coin out of Tony Schiavone's hand, which leads to Sammy just flipping out and like, that was kind of Jericho living vicariously through Sammy. What I mean by that is like, you've heard the rumors. I'm the idiot who took on Goldberg and took on Brock Lesnar. Thank goodness they didn't kill me. But when you get to a certain point, you're like, I don't give a shit. I'll fight anybody. I'll fight all of you right now. And that's why I had Sammy say that. I'll fight two on one, three on one, four on five on. I'll take the popcorn guy if that's what it takes. I'll fight you all. So I wanted it to almost be like not going in the typical wrestling tropes and the wrestling canon where, you know, you just got to hope that you get the best. Like, this i'm going out there and i'm going to take control and i'm going to show all you guys just how tough you really are and i know what's going to happen when it's two on one and it's not going to be good for you that was type of the the kind of the mindset that i had for that and i also want to say i was very very proud of all the guys in the parlay that we had uh which i got from johnny depp in um pirates of the caribbean and i had to do almost the same thing that johnny does in that movie with jack sparrow and he's like possibly possibly partake parlay that's what it is and we like introducing these new terms in the wrestling parlay. We did the we did the town hall. We did the debate. Uh, we do all of these types of things where we if we don't want to do a typical contract sign or whatever. Make something a little bit different, and that's why I had the parlay. But I was really impressed with the week before Wardlow cut a great, great promo. I think Jake did a great promo with the "You're going to be drinking out of straws." And so the next week, Sammy and Spears and. Uh, FDR and Santana Ortiz, they all really show that they can talk. And that's the reason why all of these guys are in the main event. This is not MJF and his merry men and, and Jericho and his, you know, his, his, his group of buddies. It's five legit huge stars 
kind of combining into making this a really big deal and a really big event. And that's exactly what happened. So I think by the time all the promos were cut, all the press was done, all the pomp and circumstance and everything else was figured out and set up, then it was time to actually get into the match. And what a match it was, and we'll discuss that match uh, coming up next right here on Talk is Jericho as we go behind the barbed wire, behind the scenes. There was no barbed wire, but behind the fence uh, for the Blood and Guts match. And we'll be right back after this. You know, I love talking about my friend Steven Singer and his amazing gold dip roses and jewelry. And you know that Steven Singer's competition really hates him because Steven makes the experience of buying a diamond easier and easier and he makes it fun. Steven is the first ever to offer each and every guest the perfect price. You never need to wonder if you're getting the best price when you go to Steven Singer Jewelers. You never need to worry about negotiating either and whether or not your negotiating skills are good enough to get you a great price. Because Steven Singer Jewelers guarantees the perfect price. You will never pay more than the person next to you. And here's a little insider tip for you. Most jewelers mark their merchandise way up just to mark it down so that you feel like you're getting a great deal. You want an important purchase like diamond jewelry to be based on your negotiating skills? I know I don't. I'm terrible at it. And that will never happen at Steven Singer Jewelers. Because like I said, at Steven Singer Jewelers, you are guaranteed to get the perfect price all day, every day, 365 days a year. That's why we trust Steven Singer. He makes the experience of buying a diamond so easy. Check out Steven Singer Jewelers at the other corner of 8th and Walnut in Philly or online at IHateStevenSinger.com. Steven Singer Jewelers, one place, one price. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Save some big money now. All right, welcome back to Talk is Jericho. We're talking about kind of some of the behind-the-scenes stories of blood and guts. And uh, I mentioned just how cool it was with, with, with the crowd that was there and all the new custom-made outfits and all that sort of stuff. And then uh, it was time for the match. So we decided that Dax would start with Sammy. And originally we were kind of talking about maybe uh, I start with Spears or, or something on those lines. But but I was really like thinking, like, we haven't seen Sammy wrestle in so long. We have to remind people just how great he is. And five minutes with Dax, he really showed that. I just love that there's so much of a rumble. You know, th- there's a certain thing when you've been in this business for a while. And I've been around for 30 years, so... Uh, I've seen and done it all. And there is such the unseen um, element when you have this big fight feel and the fans know they're seeing something special. Yeah, it's great to go to Dynamite every week and see some good matches, but this one was one that people really were interested in seeing. And we, we know this because of the, the rating that we got. So the buzz right off the gate with Sammy and Dax, it was like, this is awesome, I think, right off the bat. And um, you know, one of the ideas for the first hour of the show at one point was you know, something I was adamant about was let's not have anybody do anything in the two rings beforehand. And thankfully, everybody got it. That's one thing. When you're in a company and you know what's at stake, like sometimes you're not in the main event, sometimes you are. But the main event always gets the, the, the precedent. The, they always get the dibs on anything you want to do. So when the main event says, please don't use the two rings, nobody did. So that meant right off the bat, when Sammy did that first twisting dive over both sets of ropes into the other ring, it just people just popped huge because they finally got to see what does this other ring do? How is this going to work? And for us outside, I mean, people want to be part of the show and they want to they have a cheerleader and, and, and they want to get into it. That's all we were doing outside. I mean, for, especially for me, I was out there for 20 minutes. Uh, and the storyline of the show, yes, I would have loved to have started, 
But it was better for Sammy to start. And the storyline, of course, is keeping kind of MJF and Jericho together. Under circum- different circumstances, I would have loved to have gone in there and done the whole gamut. But it just seemed to make more sense for Sammy to start. And he got a great reaction and a great pop. And, um, and like I said, I just love the look of the inner circle. It reminds me of the, the one analogy I always make is the, is the um, uh, original lineup of Guns N' Roses, where they didn't look like they fit together, but they looked like they fit together. It was just this different types of looks, but it just really worked. And I find that for the inner circle right out of the gate, we had that. So when Sammy came in, um, it was just an amazing pop. And then, and then, and then Spears and Sammy did some great stuff. And I think Spears really did great. I mean, he had an awesome line in the road to where he said, I'm great in pressure positions. I've just never been put in a pressure, pressure position. And he really hasn't. This was kind of his biggest chance in AEW. I know he had a match with Cody, but this has been a year uh, ago. So he was just right out of the gate, just killer. And then um, uh, Ortiz came in, and what a great reaction he got. And like I said, this guy, he can do anything. I, you need him to do a serious promo, he'll do it. You need him to get his bell rung in an actual bell uh, in the stadium stampede. That's hilarious. But he came in there, he just had a great high spot and great fire. And then I think after that, Cash came in and... and uh, and then Santana, another great response when he came in there. And he got, first of all, Ortiz kind of got, I don't know, back bumped into the cage. And the cage moved and he fell between the cage and the apron. And I went over and tried to pull the cage back so he could get out. It looked really, really dangerous. And then later on, Santana did the same, except for he took the bump over the top rope between the apron and the cage onto a chair that was also stuffed in there. So he he actually really got hurt. He messed up his back. Um, he was having some problems walking afterwards. So this was definitely blood and guts. And, and you, when you see after the match, I was walking around and I almost felt bad. Well, <laughs> I took the craziest bump of the match, but everybody else had bruises and cuts. Sammy looked like he was filleted in one part, and I mean, the, the, you know, just blood everywhere and, and and real bruising, like bruising on the backs and on the arms and that sort of thing. So it really did take its toll because cages will bite you. That's one thing that, that people don't realize. Cages will bite you. Cages and ladders and chairs. Oh, my. They will bite you. So you have to be careful. They're not, even though they're inanimate objects, they're dangerous. Uh, I loved Big Jake. Got a great reaction, too. And, and him and Wardlow, that's money. People went nuts for the big hoss, just beating each other up. And they really have good chemistry with each other. They know exactly who they are. You know, and it's, it's really cool how, kind of how the inner circle was paired off with the pinnacle because you got the two loudmouth, big-mouth leaders you got the two technicians in Sammy and Spears. Sammy's not a flyer like 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 uh, Spears isn't a flyer like Sammy is, but Sammy's not quite the the you know Bret Hart excellence of execution. Everything matters that Spears is, and then of course FTR and Pride and Powerful, and then the two big men with uh, with Big Jake and um, and Wardlow, and then Max came in, and here's where things are kind of funny because time the time of the match got a little bit kerfuffled, shall we say for various reasons. So things didn't fall exactly where we wanted them to. I know there was some talk about the commercial break happening at a bad time sort of thing. And, and, and it did, but we were trying our best to kind of get things on track. So a lot of times during the match, I was talking to Aubrey Edwards about where are we in the time. And uh, when Max came in, I knew that he didn't have a lot to do. And I said, let's try and go to Jericho quicker because we have a lot more to do as soon as I get in there and we don't want to get cut off by a commercial because live TV is live TV. You can't stop rock and roll and you can't stop uh, a commercial break either. So 
when I came in there, the idea that I came up with was like, we've seen so much stuff and there's been chairs and, you know, blood and because Sammy got cut open and Dax got cut open and cash got cut open almost uh, hard way. So when I came in, I said, let's, let's like when, when Max starts seeing the, the countdown go, he can kind of take his guys and retreat to their side of the ring and I'll take my guys and kind of, and they were all down. So I had to basically stand them up. And we did this West Side Story. If if you remember that movie or you know anything about it, Sharks versus Jets, where there's a big lineup of guys in the one side of the of, of the cage and a big lineup of guys in the other side of the cage, and we just wait. And I said the crowd is going to get into this, and I got that idea from from the Nexus uh, in in Sacramento when we did the seven on seven for SummerSlam. It was the Nexus versus I can't remember if it was Bret Hart's crew or whatever it was. John Cena's crew was Cena, Bret Hart, Jericho, Edge. Brian Danielson, I think Morrison might have been in there, maybe Truth. And we just came into the ring to face off against the Nexus. And it was just a complete crazy rumble. People were in Sacramento. There's bleachers that go up. So when people tap their feet on the ground, it makes a big kind of like, and they were just going crazy for that. And I said, nobody move until I give the cue. And that's basically what happened. And I said, I know this is going to happen again tonight after all this violence and all this wild stuff they've seen. If we come in there and just stop and reset and let everybody cheer, then it's going to be huge. And then we'll do the Game of Thrones just like, charge! So that's what we did. We just waited until the moment was right and just yelled out, charge! And people were going nuts. And we ended up kind of meeting in the middle and we're fighting, fighting, fighting. And I said, you know, when I throw uh, Max into the cage and knock him over the top rope into the ring... um, kind of get out of that area and I pulled Floyd the, the bat out of my coveralls which I had hidden in my coveralls the entire time I don't know if anybody noticed that I had it kind of hooked into the, the like the speedo undertights that I wear and down half my thigh and then up kind of in front of my chest and that was hidden in there the whole time so when I finally pull I'm not sure what the camera angle was for that but when I pull the bat out it was I didn't just get it in the ring. It was with me in, you know, I was hiding it the whole time. And then the idea was that some guys were supposed to feed me, as we say, like charge at me, but nobody did. So I whacked Wardlow as hard as I could with the bat. Later on, he went, that bat is no joke. I was like, I had to. And then I just went and started to hit everybody that randomly was out there, hit this guy, hit that guy, hit this guy, hit that guy. And um, uh, then the, the one kind of thing I thought is, it what if Spears, you try and escape inside the cage and I stick your head between this trellis and then kind of like sweep your legs like you would sweep somebody's legs off the apron so their head hits the apron, except for I just sweep your legs and you kind of get, you know, like guillotine choked in this, in this steel trellis. So we did that. So that's when Blood and Guts went to commercial. So we're going to take a second here to thank a new sponsor, Credit Karma. Credit Karma Money is a brand new checking account where you can win daily instant karma purchase reimbursements on items up to $5,000. Over $3 million in instant karma has already been given away to over 50,000 Credit Karma members and counting. Visit creditkarma.com slash win money to open your free account and start winning instant karma. Instant karma is going to get you is what John Lennon said. And he's right because creditkarma.com slash win money. That's creditkarma.slash win money. Credit karma with a K.com slash win money. Instant karma is sponsored by Credit Karma. No purchase necessary. Exclusions and terms apply. See rules. Banking services provided by MVB Bank Incorporated, member FDIC. Maximum balance and transfer limits apply. Like I said, it was just it, all of this mayhem was going on. And then we go to commercial break. And then we come back from commercial break. And there's also a big clock at the back of Daly's Place where you can see 
what the real time is to know like, okay, we have to be off the air at, you know, 10 o'clock, 9.59.59. So then there was another commercial break coming up and I was like, man, it was right before we started climbing to the top. And once again, live TV, once the train leaves the station, you can't pull it back. And, and kind of the idea that Tully pushed down the referee, Bryce Rensburg, and grabbed the key off of his neck, opened the door, and then Max kind of starts squeaking out. And this is after FDR had been pile-driven on the wood. Um, uh, Spears had gotten coast-to-coast from Sammy. And then kind of everyone ganged up to, to, to beat up uh, – Wardlow with Jake giving that huge Stan Hansen clothesline. So inner circle's up, pinnacle's down. We're 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 rocking, and MJF's only chance is by escaping. And he, he looks to his right, and there's that trellis. So as he starts climbing it, I was almost like, pretend you're getting chased by a bear. Like, why don't you just keep running on the ground? I'm going to climb a tree. This is the only thing I can do. But the problem was when that happened, it was during the commercial break, and I knew it. And I was like, oh. And I was trying to tell him, like, slow down, but it's hard to do that. So he eventually just started climbing. And I was like, well, um, I'm not going to be coming back from break with me being on top as well. So I'm just going to climb really slow. And I was looking at Aubrey, who was telling me, you got 30 seconds before you come back from break. And I knew that we had about 10 minutes left because I could see that clock. So I was like, I'm just going to stand right here and just work the crowd. So when we come back from break, they'll all be chanting and cheering. And then, it'll, you know, they'll be, you know, yelling for me as I'm climbing to the top of this cage. So that's what I did. And we climbed to the top of the cage. And this top of the cage was much more secure than the hell in the cell that Hunter and I had to endure back in 2002, which was really scary because you walk in that cage and it feels like you're bouncing him down in a cage. And I remember he took a backdrop on that. I was like, this is just insane. Like I just kept envisioning Mick Foley just falling through. And then I took a pedigree on that. I remember just thinking, if this pedigree, like if this cage just opens up, I'm going to go down face first onto the mat. So I wasn't too keen about walking around up there, uh, you know, when you're practicing. And I'll say this too. When you're on the ground looking up, that cage doesn't look very high. When you're, in the, oh, you're on top of the cage looking down, that thing is high as shit. Same thing when you're watching it. It was a long way down. And when you're kind of up on the top of this thing and you're kind of walking across this chain link fence. But like I said, ours was much more durable. There was some plexiglass up there and some grating up there. So that's the idea when I put put mjf in the walls and then he got out of it and then he kind of butchered my arm which he really did and that that kind of cut up my arm and mangled it a bit not just from the hold itself but getting it slammed into the cage slammed into the cage and the idea after that you saw it he hits me with the ring and then i'm down and out and he's going to throw me off unless the guys surrender and um we thought how much of a piece of shit move would it be if the guys do surrender and you throw throw me off anyways and that's kind of where it all came from which was a combination of a Tony Khan idea and an MJF idea and a Jericho idea. And listen, I, I don't <laughs> pretend that I want to take crazy stump bumps. Um, I didn't want to take a bump into the thumbtacks and the Ambrose Asylum match. And I didn't really want to take the bump from the top of the cage to the floor, which we'll talk about at length uh, in a bit. But it was best for the story. What's best for the story? It's like being a musician. What's best for the song? Who cares who plays on it? Who cares who you know, wrote the lyrics, what is best for the song and what was best for our angle and, all sto- and our story, considering that we started with uh, Blood and Guts and didn't finish with it, was this, this, this piece of shit. Like the, the, the inner circle was up, they were winning, everything was great until MGF cheated and then, you know, all he had left was kind of threatening to kill me because we said, you're going to have to kill us to make us surrender. And when he threatened that, uh, Sammy su- surrendered. And the original plan was for Santana Ortiz to do that and then 
Santana had the idea for Sammy to do it, which is much more of a babyface thing for Sammy. Once again, we're always working together with each other to try and think of the best moments and the best ideas for what's going on with the story and the characters. Uh, and that was it. So, um, you know, they win. They surrender for me. And then Max throws me off to, you know, off this cage 15, 20 feet down or whatever it was. So, um, and we'll talk about that bump coming up and just how I felt about it and kind of a little bit of the response to it on both sides. But I will say this, that Blood and Guts match was so intense and so violent and so exactly what it needed to be for that story. And I've read people saying it was the greatest War Games match ever. And I say it was the greatest Blood and Guts match ever because it was the only Blood and Guts match ever. But we set the tone and set the precedent for what future Blood and Guts matches are going to be. There's no jokes inside of Blood and Guts. There is just a fight and there's blood and there might not be guts literally, but there's a whole lot of guts to be in that match and to pull it off properly. And I'm very proud of all the guys in that match, how we were able to put it together to get it in the ring, uh, what we actually did in the ring, what we did afterwards, uh, and also dealing with live TV. And, and like I said, some of those commercial breaks were a little bit inconvenienced, but there's nothing you can do. And I think under the circumstances, all things uh, considered, it was just a tremendous home run all across the board, 17 stars. All that stuff is great, but most importantly, we are the number one watched cable show on television this week on that night. And you can never take that away. So uh, one last quick thank you to our friends at Geico for making Talk is Jericho possible. I know all you guys listening, uh, for the most part, either own or rent your homes. I know it's hard work, but you know it's easy bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or renters insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit geico.com today. That's geico.com. All right, welcome back to uh, Talks Jericho. We are discussing uh, behind the scenes, inside the cage of blood and guts. And we've talked about everything except for the actual finish, which... I'll be honest with you. I was really, really nervous about this all day long. And like I discussed earlier, we thought it was the best way to go for the finish. And, you know, I am not about taking crazy bumps like that, but it was the perfect way to continue the story. So uh, a few weeks prior, a month prior, six weeks prior, kind of came up with the idea um, along with Tony and, and, and MJF and said, well, what do we have to do to make this happen um now obviously here's the thing when you're doing kind of a live stunt show which is what wrestling is i always say people when people use the word fake that's a word that's very very unacceptable because that's not something that's ever the case obviously we're telling a story and we know what's going to happen to a certain extent but it is also a live show with a live element to it that you really can't hedge your bets that nothing's going to happen and we've seen instances where stunts do go wrong, where they go very wrong. I mean, all you have to do is just think about Owen Hart to, to think about a stunt that went wrong live. There is no second take. There is no camera angle take. It's live. And I think that's something that's very unique about pro wrestling that no other sport has. Uh, maybe akin to if you're going to see the Indiana Jones show at Universal Studios where they put on this live you know, stunt um, extravaganza. 
just multiply that by millions of people watching it. So that's the thing about, about this business is that, you know, there, there really is this element of danger, which I think people have been really desensitized to because they've seen everything so much and kind of almost demean some of these things that are happening, even in the ring, like watching some of the high spots that happen in the ring and some of the, just the completely amazing athletic uh, maneuvers. And just because the guys make it look so easy, sometimes people forget just how hard there is and just the margin for error one inch to the left or right and you could be seriously injured or worse so anyways we decided to figure out a way to to do this this fall and of course the idea was to kind of gimmick the stage as we call it where you fall off the cage and and go through it but how exactly do you do that and one of the things the for the few people that that first of all i got in so much trouble from my wife and my kids because i didn't really tell them what was going to happen and i thought the I thought the fall looked amazing. Um, maybe because I was the one who took it. And I just know how scared I was. Not scared, but nervous. Um, where you're kind of really thinking it, thinking about it, and not overthinking, but there's a little bit of element of worry there because you just never know. And basically, you're falling, the old nest T bump, I think it's ended up being about a 15 foot fall. So. Earlier in the day, kind of when they were kind of building everything, actually the day before, they had a big giant, you want to talk about crash pad, a big giant air mattress that was probably, I don't know, a big yellow mattress that was about 10 feet high, let's say. And I was thinking, wow, like that looks like a pretty easy thing to fall on, but maybe they're just going to, you know, put a, you know, a sheet over it or whatever the hell they're going to do. So Sammy Guevara was falling into it from the cage and they're like, do you want to try? I'm like, well, no, I don't want to try it. You know, I'll just save it for later. And it turns out that it was one of those things where like, well, you're not going to be falling into that. Like we're just testing that for the trajectory of how the body's going to fall and try and figure out kind of where we want to put the actual apparatus that you're going to fall onto. And I'll expose it. I'll tell you guys right now what it was. It was a, a black gym mat that was about, I'd say six foot high. That was on the bottom. Then there was a bunch of cardboard boxes. That's right. Empty cardboard boxes. I'm like, are you going to fill these things with anything? No, just empty cardboard boxes. That's that's what professional stuntmen fall on. And we had a, a stuntman there, like a pro stuntman. He was the guy who kind of orchestrated the, the, the big bump that Kenny and Sammy took at the end of um, Stadium Stampede last year. So we have a professional there. And um, so they're, you know, building this with with the, the six foot high kind of gym, not six foot, six inches high black gym mat. Then a bunch of boxes, cardboard boxes, empty. And then on top of that, some plywood. And then they called it like, a, not a lanyard, but some kind of a name that begin with an L that was basically kind of looked like metal staging, but it was more of just a covering. It wasn't really a pad. It was just kind of a... A decoration, kind of a flat piece of plastic that was kind of looking like a like a steel grate kind of thing, and that was it. And I was like, "Like, are you? That's it? Like this thing went from this ten foot air mattress to this thing that was probably I don't know three feet off the ground, which made that fall. If it was you know eight feet onto the other mat, then this one's eighteen feet. So I watched the stunt guy take the fall." 
and he had kind of it's called a, a turtle shell where you put that on and it kind of protects your back and then he had a, a helmet and i was like well i don't get to wear a helmet when i fall and he's like well you know it's just, we're just testing so he says make sure you take a step off it don't push yourself back because or, or you're you're You'll flip back, you know, more into your head, which is what happened when I took the power bomb from Wardlow off the stage. You kind of over rotate and land more on your head, which was very painful. Uh, and this one is you just take a step back, and then the the gravity pulls you down, so you land on your back. So I watched him do that. I, I videotaped it, and just watched it a bunch of times, and then uh, he tried it again without the turtle shell, but still with the helmet. I'm like, Jesus guy, <laughs> I don't get a helmet at all. And then you come to the point where, okay, this is what it is. And I asked a couple of our guys that were kind of our, you know, stage managers and stuff, if they felt comfortable with it. And they made a couple of additions at the top of the cage. Originally, there was kind of a little bit of a step down with a gap in the middle that, you're, that the guy pushed himself off of. So we built kind of more of a platform up there. So it was just more of a step just to, just to you know, be very, very safe because you don't want to be looking behind you and worrying about a little bit of a gap on the roof or worrying about a little bit of a step down on the roof. So we took care of all that. And then you just think about it. And there was a lot of praying. And I remember I listened to Striper, the rock that makes me roll before I go out kind of the last, you know, I don't know. You're thinking like, this could be it. This could be the last one, you know? And I remember the other time I felt this way is when I had to take the bump to the thumbtacks for a few weeks. I was just like, what's this going to feel like? And then there comes a point where you just got to go for it and do it. So when we were fighting on top of the cage and, and, you know, Sammy surrenders and then the bell rings, the music plays, and then Max kind of pulls me up again and then gives me the little shove. And I said, give me a shove. Like, I need to feel something so I can take a little bit of a, of a pushback. And I stepped back and I thought this bump would go by fast, but I just kept looking at him and looking at him and looking at him as I fell. And then I landed. And of course, it takes the breath out of you and, and kind of, you know, <laughs> trust me. I've seen a few people bagging on the fact that it was a crash pad or this kind of thing. And once again, no crash pad. It was cardboard box. I don't give a shit if it was a crash pad. It's one of those things where doing that, I mean, are we qualified to be stuntmen? I don't know. I never went to stuntman school, but just 30 years of being in the business and you just go for it. You just absolutely just put your caution to the wind and go for it. And um, it felt great. And I didn't. You know, obviously it hurts, you're paying the price, but I could move my arms and legs and I wasn't, you know, dead or knocked out. And, and I was like, this is great. What a perfect finish for this. And it took the wind completely out of the sails of the crowd. They just went completely silent. And I just laid there until they basically took me away on a stretcher. And when they took me away on a stretcher, people started clapping. Like, you know, when somebody gets hurt on a football field and they finally pick the guy up and take him off the field and everybody starts clapping. That's what, that's what happens. We had, the people were, were believing and buying into it. And as was I, and it was only later on that people, I started hearing kind of like, Oh, people thought that the, the fall was on a crash pad and it didn't look great. And, and, and for me, like I watched it back. I thought it looked, looked amazing. Uh, and the thing that was really scary is that if you watch it back, I barely missed hitting my head on the lights at the back of the stage I went so far back that I almost overshot everything. So once again, everybody in the business knows how dangerous this can be, how terrifying it is. And just the margin for error is so slim. And like I mentioned earlier, there's some hardcore wrestling fans that, that were bagging on it. And that's fine. I mean, you, you have the, the right to bag on it. And out of the 1.3 million people that watched it, like I said, if 3,000 people didn't like it, what's well, a very small uh, percentage. Most people just 
thought it was crazy, as did I. Uh, so much feedback on that. Oh my gosh, are you okay? And that was just insane. Once again, I, I've got very thick skin, and 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 it really doesn't bother me if people didn't like something because we move on to the next week. Um, but once again, everybody has opinions, and I appreciate that, and and I appreciate feedback. But for me, and I always go back to what did I think about it? How do I feel about it? And when I watched it back, man, I was like, this is absolutely insane. It's terrifying. It's a little bit exhilarating, but it's one of those things that I hope you enjoyed it because you'll never see me do it again, <laughs> ever. And I'm glad that uh, it turned out the way it did. But, oh, my gosh, I was really, really, like I said, it was weighing on my conscience all day long. And when it finally uh, happened and, and was cool and looked as, as, as great as it did, you know, I wouldn't, uh, I, I wouldn't change anything. But the last thing I want is to demean this ridiculous stunt bump that I took, which so many people worked on to make sure that I didn't get hurt. You know, and I just think all across the board, Blood and Guts was exactly what we wanted it to be. And um, it was violent and it was brutal, but it set the tone for future clashes between the pinnacle and the inner circle. And you know there'll be plenty, plenty more to come. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be more blood and guts to come. And now guys who do this in the future can go back and watch this first one and improve upon it. All of us, you know, the guys in the ring, the guys outside the ring. But I just want to say I'm really proud of everybody in our company, um, from Tony Khan to the director, Tim Walbert, and Keith Mitchell and Daryl and all the guys that were involved, Eric, the stunt coordinator, Max, Dax, Cash, Tully, uh, Spears, uh, MJF, Jericho, Santana, Ortiz, Sammy, Hager. Sammy Hager. Uh, I think everyone just did absolute great in that side of that, that, that cage, that blood and guts cage. And thanks to all you guys for watching and making us the number one most watched show on cable television. I mean, that's something nobody could ever take away from us. And we're just building from here and oh my gosh just watching the demos and the ratings for that match like i said topping 1.3 million people for a huge chunk of that last segment um everything happened the way we wanted it to and now we can continue to uh build upon the story uh for me my neck is kind of hurt and my arm is a mess it really did kind of hurt hurt it somewhere i don't know if it's a dislocation there or what it may be but um we'll get through it We'll continue forward and um, just very, very, very uh, proud of, of what we did on that night of Blood and Guts. So thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you somewhere down the road. Hopefully we'll be going back on the road soon, and uh, we'll see you on Friday for another fun-filled edition of Talk is Jericho. Be safe, stay hard, stay hungry. We'll see you soon. 